One of the challenges in leadership is you've got to keep up with what's happening in culture. And the reason we need to do that is because what we preach, what we teach, has all to do with what's happening in terms of our culture. We've got to speak into that. I uh, had a meeting. We had our first meeting of our Christian youth uh, on Friday, and we were all talking about narrative. Now, for those of you who might not be familiar with narrative, narrative is story, but it's particular to the story that we live. And the challenge is, is that very often the narratives that we live by or the story that we live by in life does not accept certain things and um, other people's narratives won't accept the things that you have. Now, why am I saying that? Because our culture is moving into a zone where it is really undermining the story that has been believed by humanity for the past thousand years maybe beyond that. And certainly for Christians, the narrative is changing even further away from what we believe to be true. So one of the things that I think is important is about family. God has something to say about the importance of family, but if you look at our society, they're changing the story and family is no longer valid. They're moving away. I mean, I read something ridiculous that didn't want to call mums mums. They wanted to call them the child bearer or something crazy like that. So um, it's just ludicrous. They're trying to get rid of it. The thing is that God has created us in a certain way, and changing that is not going to be good for us. And so we have a challenge that for our young people and for us, we've got to make sure that the storyline that we are living is a biblical one. That's part of my challenge in preaching in the church so that we come from a biblical worldview of creationism. Creationism is all about God created us. My children are learning in school that we evolved. There was a great big explosion. But, you know, what is taught in schools is very often not evidenced. I was gobsmacked. So I've got a, a series of five massive books at home called Answers. And they look at the whole thing about evolution. And what is really gobsmacking is some of the evidence that is missing. And so they will show you in a museum this massive skeletal beast of a dinosaur that lived, according to them, millions of years ago. And they've built that out of fragments of bones that they found. The challenge is this. The fragments of bones they found are no bigger than my little finger. That's what they found. And from that, they've built this massive thing. And I'm thinking, oh, there's a bit of poetic license. God created mankind, male and female, for a specific reason. If you have children, you will realize that you need both. You need a mum and you need a dad. You need both. Really, really important. And what we find is that the removal of the family unit, the removal of the distinction between male and female, mum and dad, creates a society that says we're just animals 
We can change our gender to suit. We don't have to make any commitment in partnership to uh, another man or another woman. We are free agents that have no moral obligation. That is the conclusion of evolutionary teaching. All you are is an animal. You're a glob of stuff. All of the chemicals in your body, you can buy them for 100 quid and that's it. Well, let me tell you, that's a very, very different story. That God made us. He made us male and female. Why? Because he wanted to know us. He wanted us to know one another. He wanted us to live in love and relationship. He wanted us to have children in a loving environment. He wanted us to grow up to be a society of loving people and express who God is through that. Why? Because God is love. What a different narrative. What a different story to live by. Statistics, secular statistics, still demonstrate that the healthiest environment to raise a child is with a father and a mother. That's statistics. That when they look at the children that come out of childhood being the most well-adjusted, they are the ones, majoritively, who come from a father and a mother-led family. Now, I'm not decrying single parents. I think they do a phenomenal job and they have a really hard job. But I'm saying the ideal is to have a father and a mother raising children. And for me, it's logic. You know, there are things that Jocelyn does with our family that I can't do. There are things I do. I'm the one who tells these amazing jokes. My wife can't come up with them. And so God made us male and female. And let me tell you, the distinction between male and female is not just physiological, that is in our flesh and bone, but it is in our entire personhood. I'm old enough now that I have interacted and got to know quite a lot of women over the years through friendship and leading church and ministry, and I have made a categorical understanding that women think totally different to men. I mean, man is like amazingly different. Years ago, we had this lady come. I was part of this ministry, and she taught on men and women, and she said this. She said, a man's mind is like a long corridor. And off that corridor are lots of different rooms. One might be daughter number one. The next one might be son number one. Then wife, then work, then hobby, uh, food, whatever. And the thing is, a man can only be in one room at one time. He can't be in two, he can only be in one. And then she said, a woman's mind is a bit like a washing machine. Everything goes in. And anything can come out at any time that might not be related to anything else. Now, I'm not saying that as a ridicule. I'm saying that because there is a massively different way that women think to men, the way men think. So if a, a husband and wife have an argument and they go to church and he's worshipping, then she's going, you hypocrite. Well, he's left the argument room and he's now gone into the worship room and it's all okay. When he leaves the worship room, he might revisit the argument room. But while he's not in there, it's not in his head. 
And so there's a massive distinction in the way. I'm amazed when I talk with my wife and we're having a conversation and we're in a certain room and all of a sudden the conversation is talking about, I think, there's nothing in the room about this. And I've realized she's moved to a different room without telling me. And so we've got to realize that God has made us different. Why has God made us different? Let's, let's face it. You don't want two of the same, do you? We are there to complement one another. The weaknesses that I have are the strengths that Jocelyn has and the weaknesses that she has are the strengths that I have. And where we're both lacking together, it kind of works. And so let me say to you this morning that we celebrate Father's Day, we celebrate Mother's Day, we celebrate these things because we are celebrating something great that God has made. When God made Adam and Eve, when he made man and woman, he said, man, this is really good. God made us like that. And here's a thing that will cause our society to foam at the mouth. The two are not the same and they are not interchangeable. They are not interchangeable. You can't put a dog's brain in a cat and now say that is a dog. doesn't work. They are two distinct physiological beings and men and women are massively different. You can't just change that with some medication and some cosmetic treatment. It is fundamental to who we are when we are born that we are male and female. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't some problems there. There are. People will say, well, what about these people and what about those people? Let me tell you, we live in a broken world and sin impacts every part of our life and that includes our reproduction and it includes our mental health and it includes how we live and we need to understand that, but that doesn't give us permission to rewrite the order that God has given. We are male and we are female. I mean, I was really encouraged looking at, it's about a month ago, the, I can't remember what they're called, but the Equalities Commission that the government has, they have now come out and said, when they refer to gender or to sex, they are referring to somebody's biological sex, which I thought was really encouraging. Because they understand that you need to protect safe spaces for women by not allowing somebody in who says they're a woman but is actually a man. And so there is a backlash coming to all of this. America, uh, there are a lot of um, senators in America, they are pushing through legislation called One Flag. They have been so incensed over this last month with LGBTQ pride and they've had the White House flying the pride flag and they said that is not appropriate. We should only be flying the American flag or visiting diplomats and they're pushing legislation through. And so there is some pushback coming here. And so it should. And we need to, as Christians, not attack people because of their gender, their sexuality or anything else. But we do need to, in love, say, look, I don't agree with that. So we celebrate how God has made us. Trying to change that 
leads to misery. Let me tell you, it leads to misery. There are websites given over to people who've regretted the changes they've made to who they are and the damage that that has caused over a period of time. Now, we need to offer support to everybody who's struggling with these issues. We need to make sure we're not taking a shallow view. And we need to be able to love and care and help. But we need to understand that God has something that he has created and it is very wonderful. So today, it's Father's Day. What do we celebrate about fathers? Well, the first thing we celebrate is that the only model of perfection for fatherhood is God himself. Why do I mention that? Because some of us haven't had good dads. It is a sad truth in our world that some dads haven't taken their responsibility well and haven't fathered their children well and haven't looked after them well. And so when we talk to people about God as our Father, it can in some people leave them with a cold sense or with a cold shiver because they are likening it to their Father. And I want to say to you this morning that fatherhood in humans derives its image from God. And as much as we are reflecting God's image, we are walking in the fatherhood that God intended us to have. And here's the most amazing thing. The overriding quality of God as Father is not his ability to create. It's not his command or his strength or anything. It is the fact that God is love. Should blow us away when we think about that. When we talk about men being men, we don't often talk about love. And yet scripture is full of the fact that God's overriding most powerful quality is love and when we see men loving people and caring for people we are seeing an expression of who God is with us as a humanity if God is love let me read you 1 Corinthians 13 because it talks about love and it's talking about who God is and he says if I could speak all the languages of the earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I, didn't ha but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. And then it says this, love is patient. I want to stop there for a minute because it reminds me when I drive my car. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith. It, it is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Love will last forever. Now that's the character of God 
But at the same time, to you men out there today, that's what we should be like. I want to read that again. We should be like this. We should be patient and kind. We should not be jealous or boastful or proud or rude. We should not demand our own way. We should not be irritable. We should keep no record of being wronged. We should not rejoice about injustice, but we should rejoice whenever truth wins out. We should never give up. We should never lose faith. We should always be hopeful and endure through all circumstances because we know that this kind of love will endure forever. Wow. Imagine a world of fathers like that. Imagine as you went out and you met these guys, this is what they were like. You know, I was preparing this, I thought, what a massive challenge in who we are as men. Love should be our defining factor. Love should be the thing that people look and say, wow. What else do we celebrate about fathers? Well, secondly, we celebrate that they instruct their children. Psalm 78, verse 2 to 8 says, um, For I will speak to you in a parable and will teach you the hidden lessons from our stories. Uh, things that we have heard and known, stories our ancestors handed down to us. We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell them to the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. For he issued his laws to Jacob. He gave instruction to Israel. He commanded our ancestors, teach them to your children so the next generation may know them, even the children not yet born. And they in turn will teach their own children so each generation should set its hope on you in God. We've got to be so intentional as Christian parents that we are teaching our children a Christian narrative. That we're saying, no, no, you, you weren't created by an explosion. You're not a whole load of chemicals. You are somebody that God created and that he loves. That we tell them the story that humanity chose to disobey God, to ignore God, and it unleashed on the world not only Satan, but every evil thing that we see. And we can, you know, there are plenty of examples. We can look back to the United Kingdom and see how our, over the last 50 years, things have become more violent, more debauched, uh, more sexualized, um, more drunk, more anger. All of those things have come as we have slowly taken God and removed him from our schools and removed him from parliament and removed him from society. And we've allowed people to lead us who are godless people and they have no idea of who they are, whom God has made them. And so we've got to teach our children. We've got to say, yeah, you might be taught this at school, but we will teach you what the truth is so that they can teach their children and teach their children. And the reason we have so much problem with sexual immorality in the church is that actually we're not talking about it. We're not talking about family. We're not talking about the fact that God hates divorce. That God says the only place for sex is inside a marriage between a man and a woman. 
We don't talk about some of those things. But it's, it's the narrative that we have to give because that is the one that God has said, that's how I want people to live. And living the way God wants us to live releases blessing upon us. You know, God doesn't do these things because he says, I hate you. You know, over kind of 50 years of being around, I've had my fair share of talking to people about marriages gone wrong and divorce and remarriage and unfaithfulness. And let me tell you, swapping your partner here, there and everywhere, it causes a whole load of pain. And so that's why we fight for our marriage. We fight for our relationship. We take seriously one of the things that Jocelyn and I, you know, in, in the early years, we were two cultures coming together. We struggled and we kept coming back to the vow we made before God that we would never part until death. That's our mainstay. We will stick with it no matter what happens, yep, until we die. And in that environment, God helped us to sort things out, to allow our love to flourish, to help us to care properly for one another. And the other thing you've got to undo, and I, I, you know, I say this to my kids, is all the advice that you see in all of the romantic movies, it's a whole load of twaddle. <laughs> I mean, it really is. I mean, think about this for, for a moment. The most celebrated actors who've done the most well-loved romantic movies are the ones who've been married more times than anybody else. The reality is not the same as the fiction that they write. And so we need to sit down and talk with our children. This is what love is. Love is not a feeling in the pit of your stomach. Love is an action that you decide to do. You'll have noticed in this section in, in 1 Corinthians uh, 13, not one of the descriptions of love is a feeling. Love is patient and kind. When should you be patient? Well, when I feel to be patient. Well, then I'll never be patient. When should I feel? When should I be kind? Well, when I feel to be No. You just got to be kind. And in doing those things, you are expressing the love of God because God does these things not because he feels something, but because he is love and he chooses to do it. And the greatest expression of love is our intention that we will do this. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have a fluttering in your stomach. You know, all the romantic stuff. You know what they never show in these romantic movies? They never show them sitting at the dinner table and he farts. I mean, come on. How many times have you sat around the dinner table and somebody's made a bad smell? Oh, that's not very romantic. Or that he chews with his mouth open. I mean, my daughter would never go out with somebody who chews. She, she gets wound up with noisy chewing. Oh, there's a few others. If you're eating crisps, go somewhere else. But do you understand? They never show those things. And the irony is, you know, I, 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 maybe I shouldn't say, I got married in India and mine was an arranged marriage. I don't know if you knew that. I had an arranged marriage. Not a forced marriage, an arranged marriage. It's very entertaining. I'll tell you the story one day. But, but what I loved about the Indian arranged marriages is you start with a commitment and love grows. So my love for my wife, since the day we got married, has steadily gone up. 
In the West, people marry because of a feeling and a fluttering in their stomach, and so they're up here, and when they get married, it starts to go downhill because, hey, man, he doesn't change his socks. <laughs> yeah? And she leaves, her, she leaves her clothes everywhere. And all of a sudden, it bursts this bubble that people had, and, you know, there's some great wisdom about arranged marriage. You know, when people go out for the first time, you know, the bathroom is, like, blocked for an hour. They're smelling nice and what have you. But when they go and meet the person they're going out with, nobody gets to see what they are actually like. The people who really know what they're like are the parents. So in India, the parents get together and say, would these two get on together? Because let's be honest, those who know the children, I know my daughter better than she knows herself. Yeah, maybe we can learn something in our culture. And so what we are doing is we are moving into a situation where we are saying to people that we need to train our children because we want them to become mature adults, we want them to be well-rounded adults, and we want them to know about God and have a worldview that recognizes that this planet that we're on is part of God's plan. Your life here today is part of God's plan. You're not an accident, no matter what your parents said to you. You know, I had a friend, and it wasn't until he was in his 50s that he finally dealt with the fact that his father said to him, you'll never amount to anything. That, that one line had kept him back his entire life. We don't want to be like that. God has a plan for us, and in his plan, What he is looking to do is to give us an abundant life, but some of the things we have to go through are not things that we like. You know, growing up, we had to do chores. Anybody here had to do chores growing up? Man, my kids have chores. Do they like to? No. My son can spend more time arguing against the chore than it would actually take to do it. And so we need to instruct our children. The third thing that fathers do is they discipline their children. Now, this is a big no-no word. Oh, no, you're not allowed to use that word, discipline. Let me read you Proverbs 13:24 that will cause a modern society to foam at the mouth. Those who spare the rod of discipline hate their children. Those who love their children care enough to discipline them. Let me give you a fact. This is a fact. Boys will never, ever brush their teeth unless there is a threat behind it. I'm sorry. They will not do so. Well, certainly, maybe it's just mine. We do not naturally do the things that we don't like doing. That needs to be done. Somebody needs to clean the kitchen. Somebody needs to fill the dishwasher. Somebody needs to put the rubbish out. Somebody needs to clean the windows. Somebody needs to mow the lawn. Somebody needs to clear up the dirty dishes and blah, blah, blah. Who likes doing that? Who likes cleaning their house? I know there's a few. Oh, wow. Praise God. Uh, Jocelyn, just make a note. We'll invite them around. If you come on Monday, you come on Tuesday. Yep. There are things that we don't like to do, but we do them because we have to do them. And children will not automatically do them unless there is some form 
of pressure behind to help them do that. And I am not saying that we get a stick and beat the children. We don't do that. Yeah? The only time we ever smacked our children was on the hand, and that is when they had used really bad violence upon one of their siblings. But as soon as they were old enough, we had something called the naughty step or the naughty corner or whatever, where they had to say, it was quite interesting, because when Zoe was naughty, we'd say, well, what you've done is naughty, you need to go and sit on the naughty step, and then we'd come back after a short while, that they work out something like one minute per year you have to wait, or something like that. So I have to wait, it's something like 50 minutes now, anyway. But we would go, and here's the thing, you would ask them, what did you do? And it would take forever. Um, I wasn't, I know, specifically, what did you do? And it came with great labor often. I pinched James. And you know, it's important to understand those things. And in terms of discipline, I mean, what's ironic to me is the world is recognizing that you need to take people who have done bad stuff and you need to confront them with it. You need them to meet the people whom they have harmed so they can see the damage that they have done. Not that that will uh, change people, but it will some. And we see, you know, the thing that, that kind of comes out of the discipline, we see in our current society the result of young people with no discipline. You go to the park and there are off-road bikes kicking about. You've got kids smoking, smashing bottles, antisocial behavior, you know, all those things because we do not bring discipline in. And the discipline, the responsibility is for us as fathers, as mothers, it is our responsibility to train our children. Because if we do the job when they are young, you know, for me it felt like when I was a dad, it felt like for the first seven years of Zoe's life, the only word I ever said to her was no. But you know, now no is more rare. There are yeses and well done and yeah, that's good. But actually it's come over a time of her learning the boundaries and the constraints of what you can do. And if we don't do that as mums and dads, we should not be surprised if we have children that have no sense of control. Now there is the other side that we can become so controlling that actually we end up oppressing our children. We should not do that. That's really negative. One of the things I saw in India that was really tough were kids were so under the thumb that when they went to college and they had some freedom, they did crazy stuff. You need to teach responsibility. It's one of the things that I learned by watching other parents as I was growing up is you teach responsibility. We give our children responsibility. And they say, what should we do? Say, that's, you need to work out what you need to do. And then we'll talk about it afterwards. Because if we don't give them responsibility now, how are they going to deal with it when they're on their own? We need to help them and teach them those things to do. One of the sad illustrations of a lack of discipline is particularly apparent in America in how children shoot children in schools. I mean, to me, that is one of the worst extremes that you can get to. We need to make sure that we are good fathers. Now, 
Having said all of that, I know that there are some bad fathers out there. But I would say probably not as many as you think. Why would I say that? In my 13 years as a pastor here and before, I've done a lot of funerals. And I've yet to see a funeral where somebody gets up and say, my dad was a complete waste of space. They all say he was a good father. Yeah, he may have had problems, may have had issues, but on the main, he was good. And just because, you know, I like fruit, I like apples in particular, and every so often you bite into an apple and it's a bad apple. You have that? You, but that doesn't put me off eating apples. And because there are people who are a bad example out there, and the challenge is social media kind of makes us think there are more bad apples than they are because they take the same bad apple and put it everywhere. And you think, well, there's like 50. You think, actually, no, there's only one. We shouldn't let that push us away from the knowledge that there are good fathers out there. And let me tell you, being a good father today is an investment that we will have good fathers tomorrow. We need to be good fathers today. We need to be a great dad today because the generation that we are being fathers to will one day themselves be fathers and mothers. What does that mean? I would say the greatest gift, apart from love, that you can give to your children is time. It's stopping and listening. And I'm acutely aware how many times I say, I don't have time, I'm busy, come back in a bit, and that never happens. Um, you've got to give time. We've, one of the things we find increasingly is we turn the TV off, we're sitting on our bed reading, and the kids come in and we talk for two hours. Giving time so that we demonstrate to our children that we are good fathers. And that doesn't mean we are perfect fathers. Let me say something that can be extremely difficult as a father is to apologize to your children, but you need to do it. If you do something that is clearly wrong, you need to sit down with your child and say, I'm really sorry, what I did there was wrong. They need to see that dads make mistakes but are able to apologize and recognize that and change their behavior. Hey, we expect it from our children. So we need to be able to do that. And children, forgive your dads. I know they tell bad jokes, but just forgive that. Be loving towards them. Let me tell you, being a father is not easy. I know being a mother is not easy, but as a dad, I fully understand that being a father is not an easy task to do. In fact, I would say one of the greatest gifts and challenges that we face if God has given us the gift to be a parent is parenting well. You know, other people have different callings. And I'm really conscious that when we're talking about fathers and about mothers, what about people who've never married? What about single people? You have a different call and gift. There are people here who may not be a father but are a father in God. They have an impact. There are enough children out there. There are enough people in the world that we mix with every day who need a good parent, even though you might not be a parent. And so God 
will use you. And there are different callings within that. And by no means am I saying that a father and mother is a higher calling to a single person. It is different. And it's difficult. I know I've chatted with single people. I was 37 before I got married, so I know what singleness is about. But I will tell you that singleness has its own pain and its own challenges, but so does being a parent. One of the big things that people always say for those who are single is about loneliness, but I tell you, in my journey as a church leader, the number of people I've met in marriages who are lonely is astounding. And so I want to encourage you today. Be a good dad. If you don't have children, then treat others. Paul says, you know, treat women like sisters and mothers. Treat men like your sons uh, and like your fathers. You have an opportunity to be a dad to somebody else. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you. I want to thank you that you love us. I want to thank you that your most distinctive characteristic is love. And I pray today, I pray for every man in this room today. I want to pray that the overarching expression of who we are would be the love of God. That people would look at us and say, there is someone who loves unconditionally, someone who is kind and patient, someone who doesn't uh, carry around revenge and the wrongs that we make. And so, Father, I pray today, I pray that you would watch over and bless. And I want to pray especially for families today. Father, I want to pray that you'd protect them from the evil one, that you would bless them. I pray for every father that you would bless them, give them wisdom, help them to be a good role model. Father, give them that discernment and that knowledge and express your love through them in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.